You're listening to episode 165 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, storytellers. We have author Anna on the show today, but before we go any further, please note that this episode contains content and discussion about suicide. If this topic is triggering or upsetting for you, please skip this episode. Now back to our show, I want to take a quick minute to shout out one of our storytellers, C. Knight 23 who left us an incredibly thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. They wrote, This podcast gave me motivation and confidence to finish my first book. Man, I am obsessed with this podcast. And let me tell you, as a stay-at-home mom, I listen to a lot of podcasts. It takes a lot to keep my attention, but the content, energy, and the community 88 Cups of Tea delivers is incredible and irreplaceable. I've been working on my first book, and it's been a source of information and useful tips that have been invaluable in the process of completing this project of mine. Yin is truly talented in how she can connect with all different types of people, and as a member of her Facebook group, she makes everyone feel connected, heard, and valued. That's not easy to do. I've binged on this episode and have even gone all the way back to 2017. I can't get enough. Keep up the amazing work. It's not unnoticed, and it's truly positively changing the lives of writers regardless of background or experience. Wow, first of all... A huge congratulations on finishing your first book. What a phenomenal accomplishment. You should be so, so proud of yourself. And second, thank you so much for your support and taking the time to write such a kind review. I am so happy you found our community and I am so lucky to have a listener like you in 88 Cups of Tea. So thank you, thank you. Now, if you haven't subscribed to our show yet or left a review like C Night 23, I'd be so grateful if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And if you have some time, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. So what I heard is that it helps our show become more visible to new listeners and Honestly, every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea to help our community grow. And you want to know what else? Every time I read one of your comments, it boosts my morale and slaps the biggest smile on my face. It's basically like walking into your home and finding heartwarming handwritten post-it notes hanging out in the most unexpected places. So thank you, thank you for taking the time to throw up those post-it notes for me to find. For today's episode with Anna, I want to thank our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts for supporting our work as the go-to community for storytellers. We teamed up with VCFA's MFA in Writing for Children and Young Adults, and we created a thoughtfully curated series of podcast episodes and personal essays to provide you with as much value as possible to help you along your writing journey. Over these couple of months, the alumni and faculty from VCFA's MFA in Writing programs have been sharing their most intimate stories about their life as a writer, from topics exploring the art and the heart of writing, to overcoming imposter syndrome and breaking out of creative blocks, to actionable step-by-steps on improving your craft. These stories will guide and uplift 
every storyteller in our community, and they've already been resonating deeply with so many of our storytellers. So if you haven't had the chance to check out our series yet, be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash VCFA because we put a lot of heart and soul into creating the series and bringing it to life for you all. I also encourage you to learn more about Vermont College of Fine Arts at vcfa.edu. Now on to today's guest, Anna is the author of The Place Between Breaths, The Fold, Wait For Me, and A Step From Heaven, which was a National Book Award finalist and won the Michael L. Prince Award. Her honors include the International Reading Association Award and the Parents' Choice Gold Award. Her books have been named as ALA Best Books for Young Adults and a New York Times Notable Book. She also teaches at Vermont College of Fine Arts in the Writing for Children and Young Adults MFA. In our conversation, Na shares how she fell in love with storytelling, giving us a peek into her childhood and shares the heartwarming impact that representation has in the world. We then dive into her writing process for vignettes and how she builds upon emotions and feelings to craft her scenes. She shares her experience serving on the National Book Award Committee and what the selection process looks like behind the curtain. Later on in our conversation, she tells her story of grief and heartbreak that inspired her novel, The Place Between Breaths. We discuss the harmful narratives created around mental illness, and she stresses the importance of mental health resources. We then continue to dig into her experience writing for TV, the steps you can take to break into TV writing, and the important role that community serves in your creative pursuits and how you can find that through an MFA experience. I have a feeling you are going to really love this episode, so let's just jump right in. Hey everyone, I am so excited. We have Anna with us here today. I am pumped. I heard the best things about her, and we also have had Jacqueline Woodson on the podcast before. That was the first time that I learned about you when she mentioned that you're a good friend of hers and she loves your writing. She recommended your writing in the recommended book section towards the end of her episode. So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And Jackie is my sister. She was my first writing mentor and then my biggest cheerleader and then family now. We have children in common. It's a long convoluted story, but our families are merged. So it's, it's wonderful. She's, she's an amazing writer and even a more amazing human being. Oh, I love what a small world it is. And yes, I saw on Instagram, both on your Instagram and on Jacqueline's Instagram, your, your children come together, your families come together. It was beautiful. And I think it was like Thanksgiving or something. Yeah. We get together for holidays and for birthdays. So our daughters, our elder daughters are half sisters. So my ex partner is also the donor for Jackie and Juliet's daughter, Toshi. So that's the connection. (laughs) Wait, are you serious? And it gets even deeper. Okay, hold on. Then Juliet, her partner had Jackson on February 19th. And then two years later, I had my daughter on Dina and she was born on February 19th. So we have these two birthday twins. It's like crazy cosmic stuff, you know, like who would have created that? 
Listen, if you don't believe in fate, I'm sure now you do because we totally do. We know that we were meant to be family. There we go. I really do. And I, I, a lot of people, they usually don't believe in reincarnation and all that. I grew up Buddhist, being raised Buddhist. And I, I that's something that was huge teachings for me and my mm-hmm. upbringing. And we also talk culturally, we talk a lot about being fated with certain people, friends, lifetimes. And this is, oh, I just got goosebumps on my cheeks, on my arms, like places where you normally <laughs> don't have goosebumps. You guys have a very special connection and a bond as if you've already known each other and have been family members in other past lives, if that exists. We call each other sister wives. It's <laughs> so crazy. Oh my gosh. Now I remember because she mentioned something about a father or donor or something. And I yeah. was like, this is deja vu right now. And I could I could have <laughs> sworn. So I got to replay that, that interview to remind myself. But I know this story sounds too familiar to me. So I know it was likely brought up in Jackie's conversation when we were talking about her kids. So this is, oh my God, I just got chills. I love this. Oh my gosh. Not, nah, this is so fun. <laughs> Okay, so I want to get into about you and about your story. How did you first fall in love with storytelling? So my mother is a natural storyteller, and she would tell us stories that were basically Korean folklore to make sure that we were behaving properly. Otherwise, you know, things like tigers and other things would come and eat us. So she was a natural storyteller. But outside of that, when we first immigrated to the United States, my father enrolled me in this like book of the month club. And so I would get books every month. I couldn't read the books, but I had books that came to my door. And eventually when I did start reading, I would read those books. I would read books at the library. I was just, I was a total, total nerd for stories. And so I was reading constantly it was a part of my life. But then once I got to high school and college and your focus turns to kind of more academic stuff, I lost that connection to story. And it was much more about just achieving in school and things like that. But it wasn't until the last year in college that I rediscovered with a class that I was taking in children's literature, I just rediscovered what story meant to me because we were reading stories in my class. And it was just this flashback. I was like, oh, I've always been a reader. I've always loved stories. It was just one of those things that felt so right when I started to read stories again that were from my childhood and also current stories, but it just, it made sense to me. Do you mind me asking how old you were when you immigrated to the U.S. with your family? So I was four years old when we immigrated. And then you moved to San Diego. Correct. That's so funny because my girlfriend, she was born and raised in San Diego, and we recently just did a cross-country road trip move oh, wow. from San Diego all the way to New York. And I'm actually born and raised in New York, met my girlfriend in L.A., then moved with her to San Diego. Oh my goodness. Where were you living? So we were living in the Carlsbad Encinitas area. Are you familiar? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So were you living near that area? No, I know San Diego pretty well because I had friends all over the place, but I do know Carlsbad. My aunt is a little bit outside of Carlsbad, up near, um, a little bit more north, like near Dana Point. But I had friends who lived in Carlsbad and Del Mar. I mean, it was- Gosh. Okay. I need to ask you, do you miss San Diego? No, this is the thing. So when I was living in San Diego, it was extremely conservative. Peter Wilson was our mayor and he had such a 
horrible policy towards immigrants and especially against the Latinos that were coming over the border. So he tried to, like even before Trump, but he tried to really reinforce the border. He was all about keeping people out. It was a military city. Yes. You know, the military had been present for so long. So the attitude towards immigrants were, it just was not very friendly. We had pockets of little kind of ghettos, but for the most part, folks were white and very conservative. So my memories of San Diego, while there were parts of it that I loved, that for me, just my friends going to the beach, there are things that I adored about the geography and my community, there was also a lot of racism that I do not miss Mm -hmm. at all at this point. And I grew up in a really homogenous white neighborhood. And I remember always being taunted and teased. And so there's stuff that for me, San Diego holds a lot of baggage. I know it's a beautiful city, but, and it's actually changed quite a bit. But during the time that I was growing up in San Diego in the 80s, it was not a really friendly environment for people of color, for gay folks, for anybody just kind of outside of a certain norm that existed. Well, I can't imagine what it was like because when, you know, I'll be honest, when my mom first learned about San Diego as a town and as a city, she wanted to check it out. Uh, This was 15. 15 years ago. I'm like, how old am I now? Okay. So it's like a little (laughs) over 15 years ago. And she's looking for places to invest in like property. And she fell in love with San Diego. So, oh, it's beautiful there. Exactly. Here's the thing. So I went in with this fairy tale vision again. I know we talked a little bit earlier during our chat, pre chat, about like, you know, when you have the privilege of seeing places as a tourist versus living there. Mm -hmm. So I saw it with these rose colored lenses thinking, oh, my God, San Diego's gorgeous because we only went to the places where we knew, you know, it so happened to be safe, you know, it so happened to be uh, very welcoming near the little Italy area. But here's the thing. When I lived with my girlfriend, this was a year and a half ago, it was a shock for me. We were in the town of Carlsbad going to one of those farmer's markets and a group of young boys, I guess teenagers or young college age, I'm not sure, could be military they started shouting at me and my girlfriend as we were walking down the street and they shouted, yo, are you a dude or a girl? Like just very like threatening in his tone. I was so shocked. It ruined my entire week because I was like, where the fuck did that come from? And then that's my girlfriend who was born and raised in San Diego. She was the only non-white kid Mm -hmm. in middle school and elementary school. Then I believe it was high school or sorry, a little bit in middle school and high school. Then she met like two other Asian kids. Until this day, she's best friends with him, funny enough. And (laughs) she's like, you know, Bay, like it could be, it's just like a military town. Yeah. You know, and it's so usually that kind of thinking is propelled and just heightened even more. And I just, it never hit me. And I never saw it until that year and a half ago, that incident. And then I started to be a lot more wary where I was walking, where I was going. And I started to notice a lot more things, a lot more looks, a lot. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was ignorant all along and now I see. And it just, it was interesting where, you know, like I, I cannot imagine when you said you were growing up at your time in San Diego, how much worse it was if it still is like that a year and a half ago. 
absolutely. I think the prevalent kind of attitude and cultural feelings, it is very conservative. And you would not expect that from a West Coast, fairly cosmopolitan, larger metropolis. Like that's really difficult to imagine. But San Diego has a really deep and rich history with racism and military and and especially because they are close to the border. I think there's a heightened awareness of immigration and kind of the transient populations that go through there on their way to somewhere else, but looking for jobs, you know, moving into other neighborhoods. It's kind of difficult. It's a it's a strange city that way. So I personally would never choose to move back there, but at the same time, it is a beautiful place. I grew up in a really nice neighborhood next to the mountains and we would hike up into the mountains and we would go to the beach and there was a small but really thoughtful and loving Korean American population there that started to grow while I was growing up. So that was really nice to have. But for the most part, I grew up really fearful, (laughs) like not wanting to be noticed, not wanting to speak up, not wanting to draw any kind of attention towards me because it was never really good attention. When you're reflecting back right now, I'm always curious about parenting. And when the older you get, like you start having children of your own, is that something that you feel like your daughter has ever been exposed to or come across? Yeah. No, this is so interesting. Okay. This is why living in Vermont is so hard. So I came here with my ex-partner We bought this lovely piece of property in Vermont because you can do this in Vermont. There's a lot of land. So we bought this lovely piece of property and then I built my house after we split up. So my older daughter just basically runs up the hill and runs back down the hill. And this was very purposeful. We wanted to have our daughter feel like she had her family right there, even though we were broken up. But it was for a long time. So we were living in Berkeley, California and Juna, my older daughter was born there. And I remind her constantly, you are a Berkeley child, but we came from the most diverse, you know, very Asian, very wonderful community of folks. And I loved it in Berkeley. It just, it was for the first time where I felt at home and at peace because I didn't stand out. I didn't have anything to prove when I walked down the street. It was so wonderful that way. And so when we came to Vermont, I knew that it was not going to be the same and that my daughter was basically going to be brought up in a world that felt similar to the way that I was brought up, which was a very homogenous white community. And I remember telling her father, I said, if she ever (laughs) comes home crying for being taunted or having some racist person do or say things to her, we are out of here. And I don't care what, you know, like I am out. She will never be in an environment where she needs to be ashamed because it's a choice. We both have jobs where we can go somewhere else and raise our daughter in a place where she will never have to feel other. But in Vermont, that is the situation that she's going to be brought up in. She's always going to look different. She's always going to be just like a handful. I think basically at her high school, she might be one of five. And so it was a huge concern for me because that was the way I was brought up feeling very different. And it was something that I didn't want her to ever have to go through because it was a choice to live here. 
And the offset of that is that she lives on this gorgeous piece of property with woods and streams. She runs around and I don't even have to think about it. We go into town and it is this beautiful little community. Everybody knows each other. She is so safe. She has the entire little town at her command. She runs around after school with her friends. They go to the cafe, they go to the bookstore, they meet up at the pizza place. And it's basically like leave it to beaver, like really, really sweet. But at the same time, I do know that the downside of it is she doesn't see representation. She doesn't see people who look like herself. She doesn't get to be just anonymous. Everybody knows her. And they know me because we are one of the few Asian families in town. Do you think she's at that age where she is aware yet? Oh, absolutely. And part of why we go to New York a lot is just to be able to give her perspective on what the world looks like. So for a long time, she thought that she was supposed to, and this is like her own internal psyche, but she thought she she like wanted to go into medicine or be a professional like in science or you know, in her mind, she was supposed to somehow lock it down and have a career and blah, blah, She really loves to sing. She loves the arts. She's into musical theater, but those are side gigs. And she told me she would never think about getting a job in that field. And I was like, why, honey? You should, I'm a writer. I'm like, you should do what you love. Right. But she really felt like, no, no, I really need to be somebody who's got a job, like a nine to five type of thing. And she went to an all New England choral festival. She was selected from her school as one of the few to go to this regional choral festival. Congratulations. Oh, it's so exciting. I know. So she went to this choral festival, and for the first time, she met a Korean American conductor. And she was completely floored that there was an Asian American, a Korean American in this role. And she called me and she was like, I have this conductor. He's so awesome. He's Korean. And so we started chatting. I was like, honey, you're going to go talk to him. And I'm you're going to ask him about this, this. And she was like, no, no, I'm too shy. And I was like, no, this is your assignment. So she went and she talked to him and he was so thrilled to meet her because there were so few Koreans in that choral regional festival. And so they started talking. And afterwards, you know, when Juno was telling me about talking with him, she just started to cry. And I was like, oh my goodness, honey, what is going on? She was like, I've never met another Korean like doing what they love, which is basically what she loved, which is music. And I just felt for her. And I realized you don't have these role models where you are in Vermont. Like if we had been in California, you would have been seeing Korean artists and musicians and singers all over the place, but you don't have that here. And so for her, it just wasn't a possibility. Like that's not what Koreans or the people that she looked like did. So it just made me realize how important it is to see representation in all fields, to feel like you can still be in music, you can be a musical theater, you can do all these different things and be Asian, but we don't see it. So it was so vital that when she met him and saw that he had a career in something that he loved, like she got it. She was like, oh, you mean I can sing and that could be my job? And I was like, yes, honey. (laughs) Yes, you could do that. Wow. You know, this really blows my mind because 
for me growing up, I think you and I had a similar upbringing where our parents are immigrant parents. Mm-hmm. They came to America. I was born and raised in New York. I know they immigrated here, but I think our styles of upbringing were more similar versus your daughter's. And I could never imagine having parents who are like, yes, you want to be an actor? Go for right. it. You know, like I had to fight for it. Like I really had to put and my lie. foot down. Lie, hide, everything. <laughs> I just cannot imagine because you are so encouraging of any art form for your daughter to choose as an actual career to then hear that your daughter is putting pressure on herself or was putting pressure on herself because of how she was conditioned to internalize all of these thoughts and these images and perspectives because of how society is. And it just is mind-blowing. I cannot believe even after your encouragement, she's still like, no, I should do this job or that job. And then to realize, wow, it's because there was no one else that looked like us doing that for my child to believe that she could be that. Right. Just to show exactly like the the role of role models, representation. For a long time, I think I underestimated what that meant. Yes. Until she really saw this other person who looked like her doing something that she could imagine doing for the rest of her life as her career. And just being able to talking to him made such a difference. Like it changed the way she thought about what she wanted to do with her, her life. And I realized at that point, I was like, wow, representation is huge. Like getting into all the different fields, you know, whether it's science or media or whatever it is, it's so important for us to be able to kind of break down those molds and and really be able to live the life that we want to live. And it's it's important for the younger folks that are coming up to be able to see that. Yes. Oh my gosh. I am deeply happy your daughter now has the awakening to see that for herself. Yeah. And hopefully now this is a, a another option that she can consider seriously. Yeah, I would love that. At least now she knows it's a viable option. Right. That it's a choice versus kind of like, this is all I have. Exactly. For you, writing wasn't a reality really until the last year of college. So before that, it wasn't even a thought then? No, not at all. (laughs) Right. Is it because with your parents, it was very much the expectation, whether it was spoken or unspoken. Yeah. uh, But there are some Asian Americans or Asian kids that moved to America that I, I met who said sometimes their parents don't have to say it, but they knew it was expected. I'm like, okay, well, I heard it all the time verbally at home. So I'm like, lucky you. I could pretend like I didn't hear it if they didn't actually mention it. For you, was that something where it was a spoken or unspoken expectation of what career you should go for? It was always known that their sacrifice was for us to go to college. You know, this is like why they came so we could better our lives. Yes. So that was always spoken about. The other part is, you know, basically what's going to make you be successful and in their minds Because all that they knew were professional career paths. So whether being a doctor or a lawyer or some kind of business person, there were only a few career paths available. And so that was pretty clear early on. And I think for my parents, they really wanted a doctor. And so being the eldest daughter, firstborn, I had to kind of go down that path. And luckily I was 
pretty good at science, so I could do it. But it wasn't something that I loved. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. It was just something that was I was good at, and it was something that made my parents happy. And being the dutiful daughter, I did that work. And it wasn't until I got to college and I started to read. You know what's so funny? When I got to college, I would sign up for different literature classes. Wow, okay. As like my fun class because I had a ton of science classes. And then the class that I could sign up for that I thought would be fun and kind of enjoyable were literature classes. So I was always reading in college, if I could find the time. And I started to discover people like Maxine Hong Kingston, Mm. Sandra Cisneros, like all these amazing writers of color that I never had a chance to read when I was growing up. And these were the stories that I needed to feel affirmed, but never found. And so once I got to college and started reading that, I just fell in love with story again. Like it just made me realize how much I needed to see my own experience represented in the book because we never had that growing up. There were no Asian American writers. Honestly, like I never came across another Asian American writer. I read Julie of the Wolves because there was an Asian American or Alaskan character and that felt a little bit close. I read Island of the Dolphins and that was another favorite book because again, a girl that was kind of different surviving and making it on her own. All the stories that I used to gravitate towards were protagonists that were often, they were women or girls fighting to survive in a world that felt very alien and hostile. And that was the way that I felt in my world. And so those were the stories that resonated with me that made me feel like I could make it. (laughs) Every day I could make it. And it wasn't until I got to college that I found the stories that made me realize that I wasn't alone, that a lot of immigrants and people of color were experiencing very similar kinds of feelings of alienation and sadness and discomfort and feeling just completely other. When you came across like opening the gateway and finding all of these stories that were closer to your reflection of your own experiences, was that when the gears started churning in your head thinking, oh my gosh, this is making me reflect back on this specific memory and this specific experience. And now I understand. When was that moment when you thought, I'm going to steer away from doctor and I'm going to go into taking writing seriously because that's a huge decision to then bring that up to your family where it's very much reminded to us every day how much they've sacrificed for us for our own good opportunities and a better life here. Right, right. Then to say, okay, F everything that you've been dreaming and planning. (laughs) Bye-bye. And hello to your worst nightmare. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. No, I lied to my parents. I left. Oh, (laughs) I left college knowing that I wanted to be a writer, but I did not tell them that. And wait, so did you graduate or did you drop out? No, I graduated. I graduated with, you know, magna cum laude. I, you know, I did all of it. (laughs) I did all of it. And I was supposed to go on to grad school I was tracked. I had a PhD program that I wanted to enroll in. And I told them, you know, let me like teach for a couple of years. So I became an eighth grade English teacher in Pasadena and then moved up to San Francisco. But I was like, I'm going to teach for a couple of years and then I'm going to apply to this PhD program. And they were all good with that. But they even knew you were teaching English. They knew, you know, being a teacher was 
perfectly fine in their eyes and then becoming a professor. Yes. Okay. Okay. So they didn't care that it was actually English. Okay. Gotcha. So all fine career path laid out. But in the meantime, I was writing for myself and sending out stories to publishers. And then I found this advertisement for writing children's literature, which is kind of what I wanted to do. Like I was, I was remembering the stories that I read as a kid and I wanted to write those stories again, except in a way that showed some of the experiences that I faced about being shy, about, you know, being alienated, about feeling not comfortable in their environment. And so I wanted to write picture books that basically spoke to my experience. And so I was writing these picture books and I saw that ad for an MFA in writing for children and young adults. And I saw these amazing beloved writers, Catherine Patterson, Jane Yolen, all these amazing children's writers, Jacqueline Woodson. And I applied and I got in. And at that point, I didn't tell my parents that I had decided to become a writer. Once I got accepted into the program is when I told them and they freaked out and they were like, what are you doing? (laughs) And I said, no, 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 it's a master's. If nothing else, I'll be able to teach and, you know, I can still go on to get my PhD, but I'm going to do this for two years. And so they reluctantly were like, okay, (laughs) I guess. And so I went and I started to write A Step from Heaven, which was the book that Jacqueline Woodson, you know, she was my first mentor. So she was the one who had read my things and said, stop the picture books (laughs) because they're bad. And I was like, oh, really? (laughs) She was like, no, you need to write this. And I was writing vignettes about my life based on having read Sandra Cisneros' House on Mango Street, which I loved. And I wanted to be able to kind of capture that same slice of life feeling. And so I was writing vignettes and Jackie, who also loves vignettes, started to mentor me on that form. And that was the story that I started in my MFA. But I never told my parents what I was writing about because I just didn't want the noise. Right. I knew that as soon as I told them, they would be all up in my business wanting to know what I was saying about yes. them. Or, <laughs> you know, so I just, I couldn't tell them. I, I was also writing another novel, a story about adoption. And so I told them about that story and I just basically kind of got them off track of what I was truly doing. And it wasn't until that my novel got accepted for publication and then finally came out that I came clean. And I was like, okay, I I wrote this story and it kind of might be a little bit autobiographical. And, you know, my father was just like, what? (laughs) It's like too late for censorship. Yeah, exactly. No, here's the book. That's it. This is all you get. (laughs) So I gave him the book. I let him read it. And I remember coming back home for some holiday. And I remember, you know, it's the book had just come out. And so my father, who had read the book, called me into his office. He was like, oh, no. <laughs> was like, oh, oh no. God, it's coming. It's coming. I'm going to get yelled at. This is going to be ugly. And my father called me into his office and he had read my novel and he basically, he was wonderful. He he actually said, I see parts of me and I see parts that are not me. And I understand that this is fiction. And so I had been so fearful that he would see that, you know, 
that I was writing memories of my own childhood, but at the same time, it was also fictionalized and I didn't know how to explain that to him. But I was so nervous to tell him the truth. I didn't give him credit for being a much more thoughtful and astute reader. So he got it, which was really like, that was my place of fear because the father character in my first novel is not very nice and he is abusive and he's a horrible dad in many ways, which was my dad in some ways, but also not my dad, which is why he could see himself, but he didn't take it really super personally because that was also not the child. You know, I I couldn't be the writer that I was if that had been my story. And at the same time, it was also a lot of emotional stuff from having grown up with a father that was very patriarchal. And, you know, we had to pass everything through him and he did control our lives to a certain extent. And so that kind of feeling of being rebellious and being disenchanted with the expectations that were put upon us, like all that stuff was still in the book. And for the most part, like some of the dissolution that happened after they came to the United States, that is in the book. Like, so he got it. He totally got how there were parts of our lives in the book and at the same time dramatized to make it a much more intense story. So wow. luckily I came out of that meeting. You are so brave. He was good. I was good. And then he told me at the end, as we were talking and stuff, he said, your next book, the mom should be bad. <laughs> I was like, okay. That was our deal. <laughs> He's so cute. Oh my gosh. Wait, so did your mom get a chance to read it? I'm sure by now. Yes. She did. It got translated into Korean and she read it. And what was her opinion? You know, she was really proud of me. She was, you know, she just sobbed. (laughs) She was super, super proud of me. She also, because it's such a tribute to her and her strength. And so she just felt so proud that... And she probably felt seen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the things that she had always taught me to believe in and the faith that she had in us as as girls to make our own path. Because even though she was still the very deferential, you know, mother and wife to my father, the things that she would tell us about making our own money, about standing strong, about making sure we had a career, that was about her giving us the freedom to make our own lives. And so the book is really a tribute to a mother who does everything she's supposed to do, but at the same time tries to instill in her kids the belief that they can do anything that they want, whether they're male or female. Because, you know, just based on coming from a Korean patriarchy, you know, it was always about the boy, my younger brother. Yes. But she never, ever, like her faith was like, both you girls, my sister and I, my brother, you all can make a path here. And it doesn't mean you have to be just a wife or a mother. You know, you have your own lives to live. And so that was what she always instilled in us in the way that she would speak to us. But in terms of what she did, she was always very deferential to my father. Wow. What an incredible mom. When you were writing these vignettes and putting it together, just sounds so memory-based, right? But I know Mm -hmm. that there are some authors, they do reach out to certain family members interviews, part of research. Was that part of the process when you're writing A Step From Heaven or was it all purely based off of 
what you could remember? So there are some parts and I can sit there and I can pick out every single part that is memory based. Oh, wow. So there were definitely memory based vignettes. But then after a certain point, the characters really did come to life. And a lot of the book is fictionalized. They are not based on my memory. They're based on a certain feeling and an emotion that I wanted to capture in the vignette. So, for example, my parents, or actually my mom, did get my hair curled (laughs) before we came to the United States. Like, I came over and we have pictures of me with a head of curls because she thought that Americans have curly hair. So I had a total head of curls. So I wrote that from that place of memory. But then when I went back and was thinking about it, what I did infuse it with was a sense of kind of melancholy and longing of trying to understand what it means to be American. And here's this family that thinks, you know, they can just curl your hair and that means you're American. But then when they get here, it doesn't matter whether you have curly hair or not. It really is about the way that you look. And having been brought up in San Diego, there was no way that curly hair made me fit in with anybody in my environment. And so other stories based on certain emotions that I had came out. So one of the vignettes about being dropped off far away from her house because she didn't want her friend to see where she lived I remember that feeling. I remember not wanting to have anybody see my house because it was this little tiny house in a lower middle class neighborhood out in the suburbs. And I remember that feeling, but I don't remember ever a time of doing that, of saying, you know, hey, can you drop me here or whatever. I do remember the feeling of it. And then I took that feeling and created a scene out of, you know, just basically the fictional world that the story was in and trying to convey that same feeling. And that's basically what I tried to do with a lot of the vignettes. Like there's probably a seed of the emotion. Actually, I know that there was a seed of the emotion there, but then the scene that built out from it was based on the fictional story that I was trying to tell. And as a writer, you know, you have a certain arc and once the characters are kind of fleshed out, They make their own choices. Mm. But for the most part, a lot of the things that I wanted to write about came from different experiences and feelings that I had when I was growing up in San Diego. Mm. Thank you for getting into that. With writing vignettes, is there something that you learn from writing your own book filled with vignettes? Any specific advice? I mean, even coming from your teacher's perspective that you can share with someone who might be interested in exploring that or is currently working on that. I love the form of vignettes. I haven't been writing in that form. I love it because it's poetry and prose married Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I don't write poetry. I love to read poetry. I am in awe of poetry. And yet, I also love an arc. Like I love story. I love a character turn. I love all that stuff. And so a vignette basically takes a moment, takes an emotional kind of feeling and turns it into metaphor and you write kind of poetically. And at the same time, you're also telling a story. So one of the vignettes that I wrote really on, this actually happened. My brother peed 
in the street while we were washing our car in the driveway. And my brother was actually probably, I don't know, four. And so he needed to go to the bathroom. He didn't want to go inside. We were just busy washing the car. And I turn around and I see him peeing in the street. And I'm looking at my father like, what are you going to do? He's peeing in the street. My father just laughs like, oh, 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 he's a boy. And I was like, if I had been peeing in the street, my father would have just told me to get in the house. Yes. So my brother, of course, peeing in the street is funny. And so my brother met one of his first best friends because another boy was riding his bike down the road, stopped and was like, you're peeing in the street. And so they started talking and they became friends. But I remember that moment and I wanted to write about why that was so weird for me as a girl and what that meant. And so I had to tell that story, but then shade it with the metaphor of the difference between girls and boys and why young Jude, the character in my book, why she would have been treated differently if she had been peeing on the street versus her younger brother and what that meant in terms of the power structure in their family and the things that she could dream about versus what he could dream about. So that vignette came from a memory of my brother doing that, but it got shaded and layered with a lot of meaning and metaphor about the difference between the gender roles within Korean culture. Oh, wow. So that, you know, I love that stuff. Like, I love how deep it can go. The vignette is literally, I think, two pages or three pages, and it has the scene, but it also has poetry. It also has metaphor. So a vignette, when you can layer that kind of stuff, it's like an emotional punch to the gut, and that's the stuff that I love. Like, I love being able to read something really short, evocative, and meaningful, and then you turn around and you think about it for a long time, which is what poetry does. So a vignette really on on the best levels works in so many different ways. And I don't know that a ton of people have been doing it. I think for the most part, novels in verse have become really popular. I'm on the National Book Award Committee for Young People's Literature this year. And I have to say, there's a lot of novels in verse coming mm. to, onto my desktop. And I get that it's it's a popular form right now. And I do love it. But it's just one of those things like, okay, this is a trend. I hope that we can find other ways to tell stories. Uh, vignettes would be great too. A traditional novel is also awesome. But it is kind of a moment in time. I think folks are getting that poetry really has such an evocative and meaningful way into people's lives. And I think for young people, poetry works really, really well because they don't have to get caught up in the entire story and novel sometimes. Like they just want a little bit of significance and something that like hits them really hard. And I think poetry does that so well, which is probably why novels in verse right now are super popular. Ooh, thank you for giving me insight on that. You mentioned that you were on the board as in like you make the decision, you contribute your votes, is it, for who you believe should win an award? The National Book Awards just announced last month their panel of judges. So fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and young people's literature. So there's five of us on well, congratulations. a committee. No, thank you. You know, I feel like this is what we need to do. Writers need to give back. The National Book Foundation is amazing. They are just Lisa Lucas. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal leader and so dedicated to getting stories out there to young people, to all people, just very, very dedicated. She was such a hardworking, amazing person. So she's, you know, 
basically I'm on a committee of five and we read the books that are submitted for this year. And then we'll be making an announcement in the fall for the National Book Awards, which is really exciting. That's exciting, but so difficult. I'm assuming it's just based off of your specific taste and perspective or their actual guidelines they have to go by. I find this so fascinating. So we have guidelines. As a committee, we came together and we create the guidelines that we think is important. Okay. You know, we email, we conference. So we've come up with guidelines that we think are important in terms of what the National Book Award means, right? So we have come up with guidelines and we're reading intently (laughs) with purpose uh, based on the guidelines that we think are important for the National Book Awards. It's hard. It's so hard. So many good books. I mean, this is the part where I just, I love so many different kinds of stories. There's nonfiction, there's fiction, there's fantasy, there's sci-fi, there's novels and verse. There's so many different kinds of stories coming across our desk. And it's really hard to just narrow it down. But at some point, you know, all five judges have a certain, you gravitate to different stories. And this is the part for me as a writer who puts their work out there and gets judged. Like I realize, so much of it is just timing. It's taste. It's mm-hmm. where a judge might be at their particular time in life. It doesn't mean your story is not worthy. It's just for whatever reason, this is what happens. Yes. I mean, not that the best writing doesn't get recognized, but at the same time, it's so subjective in so many ways. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. You know, when you mentioned the books that are brought to you and on your desk that means that they need to be submitted to you? Like you guys can't go out to look for certain books? No, the publishers submit to the National Book Awards. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the the publishers are the ones who are basically nominating or submitting their pick of books. Their best picks in their realm to then send off to you guys to consider. Oh, that's so interesting. I thought you all had like books being sent to you and combined with you all going out into the world. Like if you come into an independent bookstore and something catches your eye and you're like, oh, hey, check out this title. No, so it's all being sent to you. Right, and it's basically within a time frame because the books have to be published. I can't remember what the deadline is, but they have to be published within a certain year. And then those are the books that are eligible for the 2019 National Book Awards. Okay. So it can't be from, you know, any random date or whatever. It's you can only be considered if your book's going to be published within this year. Oh, it's current. Okay. Thank you for that. I had no idea, no clue how that even worked. And that's so eye-opening. And yeah, a lot of it I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, it would be, it's a lot with timing because let's say there's like a whole uprising of, let's just say, finally we're hearing Asian American voices, I feel like for me as a judge, Mm -hmm. I would be more drawn to see like, you know, two books that come across my desk that finally shed a light and on important topics for, let's say, the Asian American community. That would speak a lot to me personally. Right. And I could see how timing and it's all subjective. Okay. That's exciting though. Congratulations. What an exciting honor and an opportunity (laughs) to- It is a wonderful honor to be able to give back. Yes, absolutely. Especially to an organization and, you know, National Book Awards, they do so much. They really, really do so much in terms of getting literature to folks. So I'm happy to serve. Thank you for for getting into that and unpacking. 
I would love to segue into your most recent book that was released March 2018, The Place Between Breaths. And Mm -hmm. do you mind giving our listeners a snapshot from your own words of what it's about? Oh, absolutely. So A Place Between Breaths started 13 years ago. It started soon after my brother passed away and I had gotten his writings and things. My mom had received them and then she gave the box over to me and I started to go through his work. And my brother had been lost from us for several years. We didn't know where he was until the police contacted my parents and said that he had died and... um. Yeah, we we struggled as a family to understand what had happened. He had been in and out of drugs. He had gone to rehab. We thought he had been in a pretty good place until he had gotten picked up by the police and he was placed in a psychiatric hospital. And so at that point, we knew that he was suffering from a pretty major mental illness. And then after that, he disappeared once he got released and we searched for him but couldn't find him. And so after he had passed away and I'd gotten his writings, I started to look into what had happened. I started to try to understand what his life had been like. Reading his work really was disturbing and sad and just made me so As an older sister, I'd been his little mama. Like Mm. I took care of him his whole life. He was somebody that I was very close to. And so the way that I deal with grief and the way that I process things in general is to kind of go into story and to read. And I remember reading The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, which was so helpful. And for people who are grieving, it's such an amazing book that really speaks to the way that grief works. And so I was reading Joan Didion. I was reading medical texts. I was reading about genetics. I mean, even when he was in the hospital, it was pretty clear that he was suffering from a psychotic break. It seemed like based on the break, it was probably schizophrenia. He had probably been suffering from it for a while and had been self-medicating until it just wasn't working anymore, which was when he got picked up by the police. And so I went down this rabbit hole of trying to understand what had happened to him and what schizophrenia looks like. And, you know, one of the hardest things about this disease is that, well, one, it is genetic. Two, it's a a disease that you age out of, which is so funny. Like it's a young person's disease. I did not know that. At some point, you don't have to worry about getting schizophrenia because you're too old. It's a disease that strikes in the teens and in the 20s, possibly into the early 30s. But at some point, if you have not had the symptoms, you never have to worry about it again. It is completely a young person's disease. And my brother suffered from it and died from it. He took his life. And it was one of those things that I just had to understand. And I had to try to deal with the grief that I felt from not being able to have helped him when he was suffering. Not that I could know at that time, you know, looking back, I didn't know how to deal with it. I tried the best that I could, but there wasn't a sense of like what was going on or what was wrong with him. So after he passed away and I had his writings, I started to try and write a story that dealt with 
basically what an existential question, like what do you do if you know that this is something that's going to happen to you? If you know genetically you're predisposed, depression runs in my family. So I knew that he might've been suffering from depression, not that it was talked about, but it was something that was kind of obvious and suicide was in my family. Different people had taken their lives. And again, like researching what suicide looks like in families, it's, it's almost like a virus. You know, once it starts, you know, people are aware of it and it starts to kind of grow and Mm. infiltrate the generations. And so, There were all these different kind of factors of mental illness that I wanted to understand. And so I started to write a story that felt very dark, which was probably why it took me 10 years to really solve. But I started to write the story in four parts because, you know, life is seasonal that way. Mm. So I wanted to tell the story of what somebody who is suffering with the mental illness might feel like, what the future of what that mental illness could look like, what the past and what you're leaving behind. Because schizophrenia, what happens is there's a phase when you are changing over. And it's literally, they call it a prodrome phase where you're on a bridge and you can see everything that your life up until that point has been like, which is rational and sane. And then you see the irrational and insanity coming And you can basically sit there and see that your life is going to change, which is also why a lot of schizophrenics opt to choose for death as opposed to living a life that they can't control. And there isn't a cure. There's some medication that can help, but it is basically understanding that your mind is never going to be your own. And so when I was looking at the research and trying to understand my brother, I could see the choices that he felt like he did have and the choices he no longer had because of the disease. And I wanted to try to understand from some kind of perspective, like, how do you begin to think about this? Like, is that really a choice? Is that the most liberating choice? It's like so hard to even fathom. And at the same time, like it was the choice that he made. And it's a choice that a lot of schizophrenics make. And then it's, is that really a choice or is that a disease? It went down this rabbit hole. So I tried to understand it from many different perspectives, which is why there's four seasons. There's the story of the past. There's the story of the present. There's the story of the fourth dimension, which is, in my mind, the story of hope and faith and change, which nobody can really quite understand. It took me a long time to unravel the structure of the story because all I could think was past, present, and future. This is a person who's suffering from the disease, knowing what the future holds, knowing what the past looked like, and the fact that their mother was also schizophrenic. And so these three kinds of threads were supposed to kind of tie together like a DNA strand. And then I was also writing it from the point of view of four different seasons. So at some point I was like, whoa, what's that fourth season? Because I have past, present, future. That's three. And then there was another season that I couldn't figure out. And it wasn't until I finally realized it was the perspective or the season of love of the people who want to hold on for the people who want to continue to do the research, who want to believe that somehow it could be different 
So that was this other perspective, which is the voice of family, of me, you know, saying I would have done anything to make that better. I would have done anything to figure out a way to help you. And so that got woven in. So the story is told in four parts. Wow. You just made me cry as I'm listening to how you approach the story. I feel... I feel so much of that, the pain that you and your family went through. How are you and your family doing today? We're good. I mean, I still have my sister. Thankfully, she's just such a great joy and light in my life. She's wonderful. We had a hard few years trying to understand what happened with my brother. But for the most part, I think we came out on the other end feeling, at least for me, just being able to honor the life that he had, being able to be grateful for the time that we had. And at the same time, you know, there's always going to be a part of me that feels like, could I have done more? Could I have helped more? Could I have just anything to like make his life better? But that's just from my perspective, like that's my selfish need to have him still around. Whereas for him, maybe that is like, that was his choice. That was something that he felt like was his way of dealing with what he was suffering from. And I can't say that that was wrong because that was his choice. Mm -hmm. So just trying to understand all of it through the writing of the story was definitely helpful. And we still, you know, we love him. We talk about him. He's still present in our lives, but it is with anybody who, who loses a loved one, you know, you, that process of mourning never really goes away. Like you still think about him and and get sad or you remember things that he did you get happy and you're grateful that you have those memories. So, but we are, you know, as a family, we're still good. We're good. I'm so sorry. When, you. you know, for me, I can't help but also think and wonder too, because I do know Asian parents who move to America do not usually believe in what they say Americans call mental illness. And that is something that I've had to, with my own family going through depression, I've had to say it is a real thing. But the backlash I hear is, no, it's a state of mind and it's, it's a choice that you choose to be positive. Yeah, exactly. And it's very much like, you know, I had a pounded in my mom where she's very positive and she's gone through a lot of hardship where I'm not sure how she's able to stay so positive. And I told her she's in denial and it's important to recognize and explore certain things instead of just brushing it under with the positivity, because I do believe there are negative impacts that'll maybe come back years later or resurface. But she very much for a very long time, she's coming around now a, a lot better, but for a very long time, just wake up, snap out of it. You're, what is this depression thing? Wake up and get out of it. You right. just think positively and you're okay. Look at what I had to do. I had to think positively and I'm okay. And the, here's the thing where you're already going through 
your own turmoil, but then it's repeated and like dug deeper because you feel very much like you are alone in it and that what you are going through, you know is real. But then to hear from someone that's very close to you, no, that's not a real thing. It's like, then you have double fold. What do you need to do to prove it, that it is real? So then when you're going through this, trying to figure out deeper thoughts from your brother's side and what he was going through and trying to be in his shoes and understanding where he was coming from. Was that something that you had your sister to go through with or did you have to do it more alone? Or did your parents understand what he was going through and that was something that you could grieve together as a family? Mental illness is not something that is discussed and no. it's taboo mm-hmm. and it, it it's the same attitude of like, just snap out of it, you know, get a grip, whatever. Yeah. It's so funny because I look back and my grandmother who had been suffering from depression for so long, my parents would just act like she was sick. Like, oh, oh. she has a headache. Oh yeah. She's got a cold. They would put some kind of physical ailment on it, even though she was fine and she just didn't want to get out of bed. So the fact that for a long time, my family just was living in denial. And then when my brother was also suffering from schizophrenia for a long time, my my father and my mom were just like, no, he's a drug addict. You know, he's a drug addict. He can't be helped. X, Y, and Z, you know, and for a long time we believed that, but at some point, and especially after he got picked up and I was speaking with his doctors, they were like, no, there's no drugs in his body. You know, he had a psychotic break. And and at that point I realized the narrative, which allowed them to understand what was happening, which is, no, he's a drug addict. He's crazy. That was their narrative to be able to cope with not being able to fathom a mental illness that could cause somebody to lose control of the way that they were acting. And so that was their narrative. And it was just something that was difficult to help them understand because they felt so much guilt. Like at the same time that they were saying, no, he's a drug addict. They also felt so guilty that somehow they had failed him in some way. Like what had they not done as parents to lead him on the right path? You know, we are the reflection of the parents. That was something that was kind of indoctrinated into me. Like what you do, your reputation directly affects our family. It means that we didn't raise you right. Right. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of guilt that they had, that somehow they didn't raise him to be somebody who was not going to be a drug addict, like somehow they had failed to be good parents. Like that guilt also made them unable to deal with the fact that there were things out of their control, that he could be suffering from a mental illness that nobody had any understanding about. So we didn't really get to grieve together. Mm -hmm. You know, my sister and I understood and we could talk about it, but my parents were in deep denial. And my mom, because my brother had taken his own life and because my grandmother had taken her own life, like in our community, it was just something you could not talk about because somehow it reflected badly on the family. So my mom basically lied to her neighbors and to our t- church mm. members and acted like he was just in L.A. I mean, he had been passed away for years and she would still answer questions about how's your family? Oh, yeah, you know, he's in L.A. He's doing fine. She's in Berkeley. She's doing fine. Oh, yeah. You know, like she just pretended like we were all fine because she could not face 
the shame of telling people that my brother had died because then they would ask questions about how and all of, you know, the stuff that she didn't want to actually talk about. And the pain too, the pain. Yeah, and just the pain. And I was like, mom, you cannot continue to lie to people about this. It's going to come out because I was telling my friends yes. who were childhood friends and I'm sure they would get back and tell their family. So it wasn't like... It wasn't going to get out at some point, but my mom just, you know, she just would put on this sunny demeanor and pretend everything was fine. And as long as she did that, she didn't have to really confront the reality of what had happened to my brother. When she did finally come around to tell others of what really happened, or did she keep it more so he passed and didn't go into detail? I think eventually she did say that he had passed away, but she had moved by then. Right. Okay. Out of San Diego and had come up to the Berkeley area to Oakland to be closer. But, you know, she basically moved away from anybody that would ask her questions about us. I think it's too painful for her. It's too painful. There are just too many memories there and just the shock that she's had to go through. And like you said, the shame as well. Right. Now you are a parent. How is that brought up in conversation over the dinner table, if it has been? And how do you approach that kind of conversation to talk about mental illness in a real way so that it's not damaging and it's also not this elusive idea of what is that, you know, but it's an actual conversation to give knowledge and preparation for the younger generation to know, you know, if you are coming across a point where you need help, it's okay to get help. I think because I grew up here in the United States and I have a different mentality about mental illness. Yes. We talk about it when and if we need to. Therapists are great resources. So we talk about how therapy can be so positive and supportive, uh, especially during hard times. When my ex and I broke up and my older daughter, you know, just to make sure that she was feeling okay and had a resource that she felt like was outside of mom and dad. You know, she had a child therapist that she saw once a week for a little while just to make sure that she felt okay emotionally. You know, these are all things that we as parents, I mean, if you see somebody suffering or somebody just struggling to deal with certain things, we put it on the table. We talk about it. My younger daughter, who it's not been diagnosed, but pretty much she she deals with a lot of ADD stuff. And so... We talk about that, you know, just like trying to figure out what would be helpful for her, whether it's a bouncy chair or whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, different strategies around organizing and things like that. Like these are all conversations that are just really above board, neutral, but just a fact of life. Like we all struggle in some way, in some form with different feelings, with different developmental or learning disabilities or emotional issues. And and it's just part of life. Like to hide it seems ridiculous to me at this point. Like it's not worth suffering if you have the ability to also find resources to help. So we, we talk a lot about just resources that there's aunties, not just people, you know, like not just mom or dad to talk to, but there's aunties, there's friends, there's therapists. It's about being able to find people that you can be honest and real with. And hopefully they can say that 
to to me and for sure you know they they definitely do speak really openly and honestly with me which is something that I never had as a child growing up yeah. like I couldn't just talk about my feelings and my emotions but it is something that I'm really really aware of and want to make sure that my kids feel safe like there's no judgment yes you, know, you cannot tell me anything that would ever make me stop loving you so it's one of those kinds of you know having learned from my past having learned from what I saw growing up that I don't want to continue to replicate in my own life and in my children's lives. Like everything is, <laughs> is on the table. Like we can talk about it. You can talk about it with me. I can talk about it with you within certain, you know, safe parameters, developmental parameters, like, you know, that's understandable for them. So it's been good. It's, it's for the most part, you know, you just keep building from, the experiences that you've had. Oh, wow. If I become a mom, I hope I am a quarter as good of a mom as you are. I will be very <laughs> honest about that. So you truly not, nah, really. Besides the fact that I cook everything that they want. Yeah. <laughs> like a short order cook. Like, you want this? Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. These kids are so lucky to have you. I, that's what I tell them. I'm like, come on. I'm telling you, they are so lucky. and You will do wonders for your children and they're going to grow up being some of the most empowered human beings you will ever meet in this world. So you better watch it. They're going to take over, okay? <laughs> I hope so. Before we head out, like right now you're living in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And so you moved here to teach at Vermont College of Fine Arts? Well, I moved because my, my older daughter's father, my ex-partner, he got a job at St. Michael's College. I thought you guys moved because of VCFA. No, no. <laughs> No, VCFA is low residency, which is fabulous because you can work from anywhere. You just have to come for 10 days in the summer and 10 days in the winter. But otherwise, you can, you know, look at your students' work from anywhere. So VCFA was something that happened after we moved. And because it was so close and it made sense to go back and teach and help out. But I came because of him and I'm a writer so I could go anywhere and this is where he wanted to come and you chase, you chase boys, you do, you know, you give them, this was his dream. So I was like, all right, I'm on board. But once I got here, we broke up soon after. I basically, I always say like our relationship didn't really survive the move. He's lovely. We live right next door to each other. So we still get along very well. But it was hard. And I, you know, once you're here and you're established, my daughter's here, yes. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm going to stay and make sure that she has a great experience because her father's here. So I think for the most part, I'm just... You know, I'm happy to be here because it's a wonderful place to live. And at the same time, there's parts that I miss and we travel a lot to make sure that mama can get her Mexican food. Yeah. <laughs> now you're living in Vermont because you moved for the boy, but now you're going to be staying because you want to make sure your daughters are going to be having yeah. nice stability, which I agree. I think that's a really smart move. That's one of the reasons my mom did not move the whole family to San Diego because she didn't want to rock the boat for us growing up in New York. So then for you, are you able, because you just have to show up for 10 days for VCFA as the teacher, but then you're grading most of the things and reviewing online. So does that, that leave you a lot of room with writing your own projects and working on you and just like living life basically? Yes. 
I definitely have room to do my own project. So I'm working on my next novel, which is a middle grade novel. Ooh. I have two TV writing assignments right now that I'm super excited for. Wait, what do you mean? So I am writing for a producer who wants to have a story that she has brought me on board for. So I'm doing a story for her, which is exciting. It's a great project. So I'm starting the outline and script for that. And then I have my own TV assignment just based on an option for the fold that was happening. And so I started to figure out if I could write it myself. So I've been doing work on that, which is really exciting. But now there's a whole strike, the WGA. Because of the agents, the representation, right? Oh my gosh. Okay. I was going to say though, I am so excited to hear that you are also contributing and adding to more narratives on television for Asians in America. I'm so excited for that. Oh, let me tell you, especially me being from an acting background, I'm like, yes, more content, more material for us to connect with as actors. Yes, please. I'm just so excited about this. How do you know how to write TV scripts? Is this something that you just just naturally knew how to transition into? No, no. So I've been doing this since my second novel. So my second novel came very visually and I thought maybe it needed to be in a screenplay. Screenwriting, you know, just was one of those things that I was interested in. So I started to go down that rabbit hole. I started to take classes. So it's been always on my periphery and I've been working on it off and on just for me. But the TV thing started up after Crazy Rich Asians, right? Because it blew up. And so I started to get a lot more chatter from the Hollywood TV side. And so my first book did get optioned a couple times and it never got anywhere. But it was one of those things like people were interested in the story, but it was never going to get any traction because there wasn't really a big interest in Asian American narratives. Now there's really an interest and because of the whole streaming platform, there's more content that needs to be generated Yes, and they're looking. So this is probably why folks, you know, producers have been starting to hit up Asian American writers. And as a young adult writer, you know, we have good stuff. We have stuff to like put out there. So I think this is why it's starting to happen now versus like all the other times. But I've been waiting. I was like, this has got to happen at some point. Yes. It's it's so needed. And so I'm I'm super excited to jump into that pot and just like stir it up because I think it would be amazing and we need to be able to see and especially for you know I'm like looking at my kids I'm like they need to be able to see their stories out there. Do you see how much it impacted your daughter to see the conductor who's Korean American? Oh my goodness exactly. So imagine for your daughter to see on television more and more people who are controlling the narratives who look like her and aren't just just side props. You know what I mean? Right. No, my younger one is like obsessed with Aquafina now. And I'm like, yes. (laughs) She seems so fun on television or in the movies. She's so fun. You're going to kill it. Now for anyone that is interested for who's listening, possibly in diving into television writing, or maybe even me as an actor writing my own stuff. Do you have any recommendations of from your own experience writing? Like, are there any craft books that you've heard about, or maybe you've even tried and had a skim through and you're like, Hey, this is pretty good. Or like any courses, any classes? 
it's interesting because a lot of what they teach in screenwriting is basically what you learn as a writer, which is character, story arc, trying to figure out conflict, all this stuff. And there's a ton of books like Sid Field, like Robert McKee. Um, there's tons of screenwriting books that you can start out with. But I find for me, so what I've been doing is watching a ton of TV <laughs> and reading a ton of TV scripts because TV is very different from like the long form feature films. What you do as a writer in TV is so much clearer. And as a writer, you're allowed to control things so much more than in feature films, which is very much director, producer driven. TV, it's writer driven. You are the showrunner. You're the one who hires people. You're the one who oversees whether the look is right. You are doing all of that as the writer. And that's really empowering as somebody coming from a writing background. And I was like, yes. And also this is where the attention is right now because there is a lack of content and because so many streaming platforms are going to be up and running in the next few years, right? So they're looking for content like crazy. So there is a need. We can fulfill that need. Yes, there's a moment. I feel like this is the moment we need to put ourselves out there. If anybody has a story, you should hook up with other people who can write that story or help you write that story. So start with like starting to read scripts, look at the scripts, analyze what you're seeing on TV, listen to interviews, read articles. Like I am just soaking all of that in. I've been working on my script. I've been you know, well, you have to also get like Final Draft or Movie Magic. You have to get the software and all that. But outside of that, like you can really start to just think about story and what, what kind of content you want to see out there. Because that's the thing. It's like what's out there now and what other things do you want to have available? Like I feel like there's so many different narratives that are missing so it's it's just about getting your story out. This is incredible. This is so exciting. And from one of our listeners who had a question for you, uh, Tracy Kenworth, she said, do you see the children's YA MFA program becoming a must-have tool for authors in the future? Not an MFA per se. Okay. I have a whole stance on this, even though I teach in an MFA program. You do not need to get an MFA and spend tons of money in order to do the work. But I will tell you that being in a program and dedicating that money means that you're going to do the work because you're investing in yourself. If you don't have the funds or the time, you can also still learn it by yourself. And that's the thing. Like, I don't know how to write TV. I don't know how to write feature films, but I have slowly invested in it by taking classes online and in person, you know, traveling and going to workshops and things like that. I've been reading on my own. It's a slower process just because it's something that I'm kind of cobbling together as I'm learning the craft on my own. If I had spent a shitload of money and gone to Columbia or some other MFA in writing for TV and film, it would be more condensed within two years because I would have had to do that work because I would have spent the money. But I would also have come out of it with a ton of debt and no guarantee that I'm going to make it in the field. And that's the part for me that's really hard because I see a lot of students who make the investment want so badly to be the writer that they want to be and then not end up achieving that dream. And so that's the heartache 
behind like any kind of artistic endeavor. Like there's no guarantee you're going to make it. Yeah. And the MFA programs are not necessarily going to tell you because they can't always know. Like you might come in really green and become an amazing writer or come in really seasoned and professional and still not make it. Like there's no formula for why artistry and hard work and creativity and all that stuff just happens and works for some reason. Like it's so hard because I know wonderful, wonderful writers who've never made it and they work their asses off, but for whatever reason, their stories aren't getting published. And that's really hard. Like it's the one thing about being an artist that's really just a struggle. Like it's hard for me to see it in my students. It's hard to see it in other writers but it's a risk though. It reminds me so much of actors who go to Yale. Yeah. And I'm talking about Yale, you know, and it's like, holy moly. And then compared to other actors who hit the ground running and they're booking more than the ones who've gone to Yale or Juilliard. But here's the thing, conversations I've had with actors about that in the end, they're like, you know what? It was the risk I was willing to take. Yeah. Because I knew I would walk away with the training. And I'm one of those kids who ended up, you know, hitting the ground running without any background training like they did. Mm -hmm. But then now, years later, I'm stuck at a hump where I'm like, oh my God, I kind of wish I had training. Then they're like, but bye. Like, you know, like (laughs) I already completed that. So, you know what? Overall, it's a business too. It's artistry, but it's business because with anything that you want to do, there is a risk. And that I think that business informs of investing in yourself, you know, and investing in, and there are no guarantees. That reminds me of so much of everything in life, like everything. My girlfriend's restaurant, you can dump shit ton of money, all (laughs) your life savings and your family's life savings, and it could go to shit or it could be amazing, you know? So it's really about what choice do you want to make? And that, I think that is something is so important for me as a podcaster is just to talk to as many people as possible just to get different points of view. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that Tracy, the listener, asked that because it's just good for people to have various points of perspective and then they can make their own choice. You take it with a grain of salt. We're just here to provide whatever resources, information, and tools. You know you the best and you do you. The other thing I will say in being in a part of any kind of program is that you make connections. Yes, there's a community. Yeah. And I got my first book published because my mentor took it to his editor. I take books that I believe in from my students to my agent all the time. Like we help each other out. So that is something about either being in an MFA or taking classes or going sometimes, you know, some of these conferences do pan out, but you know what I mean? Like as long as you're kind of in the loop and talking to people I think for the most part, everybody wants to help everyone else succeed. I do for all my students. So there is something to be said about connecting through those programs. And I'm glad that you said that because there are a lot of people who think that they just go and it's fine and you just walk away with the community. But there's something that you said in there, which to me, it sounds like you should be proactive. Yes, you need to show up and do the work, but also... It is your career. You need to say hi, see how you can help others and how, you know, like it's not like all take, 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 but how you can be there for them. And in turn that they would love to 
help you out too if you show up and do the work and you are also right. just as willing of a participant to help others. And yes, it will come around. Thank you for adding that part in. And I love this conversation. I feel like I could go on for hours with you. So I better stop right now. My gosh, it was so great to talk with you. I know. No, it's so great to talk with you. And that wraps up our episode with Anna. Nah, I cannot thank you enough for such a transparent and honest conversation. I deeply appreciate you and I truly value our conversation. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to drop by and say hi to Nah over on Instagram at onwriting and that's spelled A-N-W-R-I-T-I-N-G. Don't forget, if you head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash on dash na, you'll find the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout the entire conversation. We collaborated with our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts MFA in Writing for Children and Young Adults to curate a thoughtful series of personal essays and podcast episodes just like today's episode so that you can feel empowered about the writer's journey. Vermont College of Fine Arts is a global community of artists continuously redefining what it means to be an arts college. They're accredited by the New England Commission on Higher Education and offers the Master of Fine Arts degree in a variety of fields, including writing, writing for children and young adults, and writing and publishing along with an international MFA in creative writing and literary translation. With low residency and fully residential options, VCFA has a graduate program to fit your needs. You can learn more at vcfa.edu. For the specially curated series of essays and podcast episodes I was mentioning before, we made sure to share intimate stories about the life of a writer exploring the art and the heart of writing and throw in some incredible step-by-step articles to improve your writing craft. These stories will guide and uplift every storyteller in our community, and they've already been resonating deeply with so many of our community. So if you haven't had the chance to check out our series yet, be sure to head over to 88cupsofteacom slash VCFA. And that's 88cupsofteacom slash VCFA. Have a super productive week, and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.